Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. Amen. Thank you, friend. Uh, you can set it right here. It's fine. I learned a new phrase uh, in the last two years. <clears throat> it was the term virtue signaling. You ever heard that term, virtue signaling? Kind of popped up in the middle of everything going on politically and with the pandemic. Here's what it means. It means the action or the practice of publicly expressing opinions or sentiments intended to demonstrate one's good character or moral correctness. So it's publicly showing your virtue. Publicly showing something that would demonstrate to other people in your community, in your job, in your, in your neighborhood, why you're a good person. Virtue signaling. I thought that was interesting when I heard that. Here's some of the ways that it might show up for us and that it has shown up in the last two years. Think about where, where, where you would have influence. These are some ways where we might signal virtue. So at work, this might be whether or not you show up for that annual charity run, right? That would be how you would signal that you're a person of virtue. At school, in the media, you signal virtue by the kind of people that you affirm. And there's nobody I'm not going to affirm. And so I'm going to affirm everybody. And then we'll fly flags outside of our house for all the people that we would affirm. The only people we don't affirm are the people who don't affirm others. I won't affirm those people because they don't affirm everybody. So I don't affirm everybody. Right? That's, that's sometimes how that plays out. In the last few years, it's been this. Whether or not you wear a mask. Depending on how bad it got. Whether or not you wore two masks. Uh, if you got one shot or if you got three shots, depending on where you're at in the pandemic, those are all ways that we would signal, hey, I'm a good person inside. I care about others. I'm morally upright. Now, for some of us, for some of us, we're too rebellious for any of that, right? Like, I refuse to play along with those forms of virtue. So, we would signal virtue by not conforming to the tyranny of those kinds of signals. Thus, Signaling your virtue by not signaling virtue. <laughs> See how that plays out? But here's, here's the challenge, I think, with some of that. Is those signals of virtue are often displayed in such a way so that it would get us something. It would get us recognition. It would get me honor at work. It would put me in line for this promotion. It would make other people think better of me. Maybe by signaling this virtue, this value that I have, it will somehow move the needle in their worldview towards the way that I see things. And so here's the, here's the challenge. A virtue that is self-focused is really no virtue at all. Because we know that. We know that things that are focused on yourself well, that's, that's really not virtuous. It's really not something of great moral character. Now, there's nothing or unique about this, and I think it's actually a really fascinating study to look at cultures across time, the way they organize themselves. Are they individualists? Are they collectivists? How do they use honor? How do they use shame to try to corral people's behavior in one way or another? But there's absolutely nothing new about that situation where we would uh, signal virtue. It's been happening thousands of years. It wasn't new at all to Jesus' time in the first century Jews. But what was so remarkable about Jesus was how he defined virtue. It caused everyone to pause and to lean in. And it was so unusual 
that it caused the religious leaders in Jesus' day to really despise him. In fact, that's what, that's what caused them to, to turn against Jesus and say, we gotta, we gotta take this guy out. They weren't just skeptical of Jesus. What Jesus had to say really turned their world upside down. And it confronts us as well with how we might signal virtue. Have you ever thought about how you signal virtue in your workplace, in your family, or in your neighborhood? What are those things that you would do internally that would demonstrate to other people, but I'm a good person? (laughs) See, see what I did, or see how I think, or see these actions that I take? Jesus pressed on all of that, and it presses it on us as well. I want to consider this weekend what Jesus said is the most important thing. The most important thing that we can do. What is the single most important thing we can do? And as you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, this is in the Orange Bibles, page 675. I just want to set the scene, the context of what's happening in the chapters around this that we zoom into. Matthew chapter 22, page 675 in the Orange Bibles. At this point in time, Jesus had been around for a couple years with his disciples, traveling through the countryside. He was really becoming rather well-known because he did some amazing stuff. He would heal people. He would teach on the countrysides. He would uh, feed whole crowds. And so what happened was as Jesus got really popular, he made his way to Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, the place where the temple was. It was the seat of religious authority and influence. And he made his way to to Jerusalem on the Passover, this great religious feast. And as he came into the city, his popularity was so high that people heard Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. He's been traveling from town to town, but now Jesus is coming here. Which gate is he coming in? Which gate is he coming? I'm going to go. I'm going to go. And so they would go and they would line the seat, the streets, enthusiastic. This celebrity was coming. This guy who could heal the blind was going to show up in our city. And so they went out with palm branches and Jesus was riding on a donkey and they would shout and exclaim, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was the kind of celebration that was only reserved for like political victorious heroes or the greatest religious leaders as they would come into town. You could imagine what that did to the chief priests. Who is this guy? He's a a carpenter from where? From from Nazareth? Be like, he's from Burkittsville? (laughs) Why is he such a big deal? Why are people like lining the streets for him and casting their coats down for him? He comes into the city and he makes a beeline for the temple and he shows up in the temple and what he sees just floors him. See, because the temple was designed in such a way that there was the inner courts, places where only the most religious people could go, the priests and those who had been sanctified. But then there were outer courts and the Old Testament says that these outer courts, the lobby of the temple, was supposed to be a place where if someone was Uh, not Jewish, if they were Gentiles, that they could come into this space and these people who were far away from God could actually connect with God. Even though they were on the outside 
ethnically and nationally, they could come in and connect with God. It's called the court. The court, and, and they were supposed to be a place of prayer. But when Jesus walks in, you know what he saw? <laughs> there, was, there was so much commerce happening and there were so many tables and they were full of money changers and people selling doves and they were probably doing a good thing. They were thinking, well, if I could, someone's traveling from a long way away and so when they come into town and I'm gonna just say, well, you don't have to go and you know, bring your doves or your, your rabbits or your lambs. Like, I'll, I'll just sell that for you here. We'll exchange that here. But in this temple court that was supposed to be reserved for people who were far away from God, <laughs> It was so overrun that none of them could come in. None of them could come in and be close to God. It just so ticked off Jesus that he goes in and he flips over the tables. And it says that he starts driving out the money changers and he fashioned a, a whip with cords. Could you imagine? Could you imagine a pastor doing that? Like, hey, uh, I know you like your pastor and everything, but you know that like, he went into the marketplace and was like, hitting people with a whip, like, this is the guy you're gonna follow? So, that, like, the next time someone says, hey, what would Jesus do? Just remind them that driving people out with a whip is a solid option, is all I'm saying. <laughs> you can imagine these religious leaders, they walk into that and they're thinking, who is this guy? Like, uh, is he an agent of, of Rome? Is he an agent of Herod? What authority does he have that he steps in here? So one of them actually goes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, let me ask you, Whose authority are you doing this under? And, and Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you. And then Jesus goes on and talks to these religious leaders. There's some other listeners around, and he tells them the story in parables. And he cuts to the punch here, and this is what he says to them. <laughs> he says, hey, you're... You're on the outside. These people that you think are on the outside, when they actually follow through with the heart that pleases God, God looks at that and accepts them. And this is how, this is how what he says. Just imagine being in the court and hearing Jesus say this. Jesus says to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. Like tax collectors, we're always joined together with sinners. Tax collectors and sinners. They were the lowest of the low. They were the traitors. Prostitutes were people they would never touch. These religious leaders who were pure and undefiled, they would never be near those people. And Jesus says, hey, guess what? Those people that you despise, that you hip-checked out of the temple courts, they're ahead of you. And he goes on, and he describes why he has a problem with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. He says, everything they do is done for people to see. Everything they do signals their virtue. They, they make their phylacteries wide. What is that? Well, there was an Old Testament law, that uh, commandment that said that we would take God's word and we would hide it in our hearts and we would bind it on our heads and we would hang it up in our homes and so they very literally would make little boxes and take portions of scripture and put it in that box and it, there's I think do I have a picture of this Dan in there go ahead and show this this is a picture of one of these phylacteries it was a outward sign how much you revered God's word it was a big old WWJD sticker bumper sticker on the back of the car 
So Jesus would say, these are people that they do everything for how people see that and they make their phylacteries big and prominent because they really, really show people how they really, really love God. He says that they love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. So Jesus is like pulling his disciples aside and says like, I know that you see how they're signaling virtue, but you need to know what's going on in their heart, that they're doing all of this for what it gets them. They're doing all of this for the honor that they experience, for the special seats they get to sit at, for how it helps secure their income, for how it helps them with their business make better connections. See, they put on a show, they signal virtue, but their hearts are from me. Jesus would go on to say, hey, you diligently study scripture as though by them it's gonna, like the phylactery thing, like it's gonna actually do something before God, but you refuse to come to me so that you could have life. That's the context that Jesus steps in and says, hey, if you wanna know what the greatest virtue is, if you wanna know what the thing is that, that's not, you're not in it to win it for yourself or how it brings an advantage to you, here's what it is. This is what he says in Matthew 22. When one of those Pharisees says, Jesus, okay, <laughs> if we're doing it wrong, What's the most important thing that we should do? Is it, um, you know, stay undefiled from the Gentiles? Is it make sure you sacrifice every Sabbath? Is it, um, you know, like, like I, I not only give 10% of my income, but I'm also going to take my old bay and my salt and my pepper, and I'm going to set 10% of that aside and make sure that's used for God's purposes? Like, what's the most important thing, Jesus? And Jesus says this, verse 37. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So this is the first and it's the greatest. That if, that if you get all of the rest of the commandments but if you miss this one, you're, you're, you're out of line. You, you've missed it. You're, you're off. It's not sacrifice. It's not service. It's simply loving God. You see, when you do everything for someone else to see it, you have observable, quantifiable things that you can say, I'm more than them. I have more square footage. I give more. My car is newer. Look at how many more times I volunteer. Look at how much greater I can pray and big words in front of others. But loving God, you can't measure that. There is no square footage. You don't get to put another tally on the, on the chalkboard about how you one up to somebody else. Loving God is purely internal. It's because you would have an affection for God that you would want to delight, cherish, adore and worship him not for what it gets you but simply for who he is that he is worth adoring that he is worth cherishing that he is worth worshiping that he is worth loving and above every other good thing this one thing is the biggest thing 
It's funny. There are all sorts of books written about spiritual churchy kind of things. Just hundreds of books and how to evangelize or share your faith. Hundreds of books and what spiritual formation is. Hundreds of books and, and, and how, to, um, how to be a good spouse or how to be a good parent. Hundreds of them. But there are very, 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 very few on how to love God. How many of our conversations in, in life group, in Bible study, are saying, hey, how are you doing loving God this week? Is he your delight and he is your joy? We'll ask each other questions about how are you doing? Are you being in an understanding with your spouse? We'll ask that. But it seems to me that if Jesus would say, loving God is the most important thing in church, shouldn't that be a part of the fabric of who we are? And yet I think, think there's something inside where we keep running back to those things that we can measure. There is one book that is quite helpful on this topic. It's by a guy named John Piper. It's called Desiring God, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. And I'm not very smart, so I had to look up what hedonism is. This is what hedonism is. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure. The pursuit of pleasure. See, what happens is many times people think, when you become a Christian, it's all about not partying, giving away all your money, not having any fun, not having any joy, and it's all just going to be misery until someday you'll be in heaven. And he says, no, 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 following, following God, desiring Him, loving Him, is actually the greatest single thing you can do to pursue pleasure in your life. It's the most important thing. This is how John Piper says it. This is worth memorizing. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Read that back with me. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. What gives God glory? When we are satisfied in him. What makes God look at you and say, they get it when we are satisfied in him. See, these Pharisees, they weren't satisfied in God. They were only going to be satisfied when they were in the seat of honor. When they had the preferred parking spot at the temple for their donkey. God says, are you satisfying your soul in me? Am I your everything? Do you cherish me? This is an insufficient metaphor. It certainly falls apart, but hopefully it's helpful. Imagine I go out to dinner with my wife. We're going to go on a date. We get all dolled up. We go to a premier restaurant with one of those chefs that was like an iron chef kind of place. It just costs so much money, but you hear that they make unbelievable food. Now, I'm too cheap. I would never go to a place like that, but imagine, okay? All right, and, and they make unbelievable food, and you're like, this is the most amazing thing. And so you sit down, and you, you taste this food, that is at a level that you've never experienced before. It is absolutely amazing. The best food you've ever had in your life. What brings that chef the most amount of glory? Is it when you say, thank you, I will help clear my own table? Is it when you say, I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna shovel the driveway for the family? It's when you say, this food is awesome. I love this dish. Are you t they make other dishes too? We're coming back. 
Like, we are, I don't care what it takes. I, I will save up so that I can come back and I can have another dish. Taking pleasure in what the chef gives you brings the chef glory. It honors the chef. Psalm 34, verse 8 says this, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience Him. It is rich. It is nourishing. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him. It's the most important thing you can do. Not offering to, I'm going to clear the table. I'm just going to say, God, you are so good. And I'm coming back for seconds. And I'll do whatever it takes to have another bite of this. What is it to love God? It's to desire Him. It's to feast on Him. It's to nourish your soul and delight in it the same way that you would delight in the finest of foods. Psalm 42, verses 1 through 2 says this. It says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When can I go and when can I meet with him? Imagine a deer, not just seeking water because it helps them relax, not just because it might be refreshing when they find the cool brook, but because without it, they're done. It's absolutely necessary. And so it's such a deep part that they would long for it. It's the longing of the soul to meet with God. It's being so thirsty that you'll go out of your way because you're parched. You're not at rest. As St. Augustine famously says, he says, our souls are restless until they find the rest in you, God. The deer is restless until it finds water. Now here's, here's the tragedy of what Jesus saw with these Pharisees because they had made a trade. They had made a, a critical error. They were worshiping the gifts of God rather than worshiping God himself. They were delighting in these things rather than delighting and nourishing and feasting and delighting in God himself. They had traded the greater for the lesser. And there's a word for that in scripture. It's idolatry. And the problem is too many times we look at that word idolatry and we think that it means like, like, like someone in another continent who's like bowing down to a totem pole or voodoo or something like that. But in reality, idolatry is when we place anything as more satisfying to our soul than God. Even good things. Even good things. It's not always alcohol. It's not always partying. Excuse me. It's when even these good gifts that God would give to us nourish our soul more than He does. And there's always going to be a temptation to replace God with what He has provided. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. God had said, I will abide with you. I will walk with you through the cool of the morning. And instead they say, you know, I'd rather have the fruit. There's always a temptation to replace God. Now, 
I want to briefly consider two idols that have a particular foothold on us and our culture, and, and we can rank them above nourishing our soul in God, delighting and finding pleasure in Him. One of the greatest idols for many of us is our comfort. It's our comfort and our safety and our means. Having ease is one of our greatest aims in life. And listen, even if like my greatest aim in life isn't money, the pathway to me having security and having ease and safety is often found in the pathway as we pursue money. There's always going to be a temptation to replace God with what money provides us. That's why Jesus says this. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. They can't both have a claim on your heart. They can't both nourish your soul more than anything else. Now listen, Jesus wasn't saying money is a horrible thing. He never preached that. He said that when you love it, when it becomes the most important thing, it can actually start to destroy your soul. There's nothing inherently wrong with having a a house, a car, a new car that can actually get you to work. There's nothing wrong with those things. But when those things become ultimate things, when that's the thing that nourishes your soul, that's what St. Augustine would call something that would be a disordered love. When you've messed up your priorities, when you've taken a good thing of God and you've made it the ultimate thing in your life. When things go south, when your life is tested, you're going to be tempted to rely on either God or what money provides. A.W. Tozer says this. He speaks directly to the modern Christian person regarding money. He says this. The man of pseudo-faith will fight for his verbal creed. I'm gonna fight that God is the most important thing and we need to have this in the city square and this is just the most important thing to me. But refuse to allow himself to get into a predicament where his future must depend on that creed actually being true. And so they will provide secondary ways of escape so that he'll have a way out when the roof caves in. God, I know I say, that I trust you and that I love you and that you're all that I need. But in truth, this is more important to me than you. And so I'm going to hoard it. I'm going to protect it. My mental health is going to be better when I have a lot and my mental health is going to bottom out when we're starting to run out. And guess what happens to the relationship with the spouse? We're doing great when the bank account is full, but the moment it starts running on empty is when we start clashing because that is my source of security and hope. And Jesus says, listen, You can't love God and love money. You can't love God and your own comfort. Now listen, Jesus isn't telling us to love God because he's insecure. And like he's trying to say, I just need to know you love me more than you love yourself. I need to know that you really love me more than you love your stuff. He's not doing that. He doesn't need us to stoke his heavenly ego as if somehow he's not sufficient in himself. He's doing that for our sake. Jesus would look at you and say, why are you settling for something less than the greatest pleasure you can ever have? Jesus would say, hey, listen, 
You can have money. You can chase after that if you want. You can chase after comfort. You can chase after stuff. But why would you do that? He's not saying deny yourself. Don't seek pleasure. He's saying you are far too easily pleased. It's a famous quote by C.S. Lewis. He says this, it would seem that our Lord finds, here it is, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased when we settle for the idol of our comfort and our means and our security being something other than nourishing our soul in God. And the truth is we just don't trust. I just don't trust God that he says there's more blessedness abiding in me than there is building your foundation on that house, on that car, on that pursuit. Another idol, I'm gonna strike even closer to your heart, so hang on. Another idol that we can often have is family. Imagine, imagine someone told you you're in your house and someone would say, hey, your house is on fire. You have two minutes before the whole thing is gone. In that two minutes, what do you get? What do you go and what do you retrieve and run out of the house to save? Maybe there's that heirloom, maybe there's that thing that your grandmother gave you, maybe there's those documents or those photos you can't replace. But all of us know that people are more important. All of us know that we're waking up our spouse, we're grabbing our children, we get them out first, and then we go back in to get our dog, go back in to get our chickens, we go back in and we get our rabbit. We don't get our cats. We just don't get the cats. They just, they're, they, don't, they ignore you anyway. No, we get the cats. Cats are valuable and loved by God. Karen's not here. I love you, Karen. Listen, living things are always more important. This, this is why, this is why it's so challenging when Jesus says some things about our family. Jesus would say there's a list of priorities. Psalm, uh, excuse me, Luke 14, he says this. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father or his mother, his wife or his children, his brothers or sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, when Jesus uses the word hate here, he doesn't mean that you have to dislike your family. He, he, other, where, other, other areas that would not hold with what God's word has to say about how we interact with one another. But what he is saying is that there is a priority in God's kingdom. That God, that following after God and Christ is more important to even family. And I gotta tell you, that is confounding to me. See, even, even times when I, I read that and it creates a feeling inside of me like, how can you say this thing that is so good that is like the greatest virtue that we can pursue isn't the most important thing? Think of it this way. Jesus knows what's best for my long-term joy. And Jesus knows what's best for your kids' long-term joy. I have three children I want them to love me. I want them to be near me. I want to keep them safe. I want to provide for them. 
But I'm telling you right now where our family's at, my son's getting ready to graduate, he's going to leave the state for a few months, and I'm very really staring down the reality that I can't be there for him all the time. And he has to have an anchor for his soul that's stronger than me, that's more present than me. And if things, goes, if things go right, I'm going to die before them, and they're going to be left without me, and I won't be able to help them navigate any of the challenges in life. The only thing that they're going to have to be able to deal with the inevitable heartache and the strife of life is choosing to anchor themselves and nourishing their souls in God. And someday in the future, they're going to die, and they're going to face judgment And did they know Jesus as their Lord and Savior and the treasure of their heart and the same thing that brings us the most amount of pleasure and joy and soul-fulfilling nourishment will bring that to them as well. And if you have a good marriage, we face a similar danger. If your spouse is your functional Savior, if the center of your universe who determines your happiness and your self-worth, you're setting yourself up for disaster because one day, and more likely more often than that, they're going to fail you and inevitably, one of you is going to be looking, one of you is going to be laying in a casket while the other one stares in disbelief. And you're going to have to plan a funeral You're going to have to smile and hug people as they come in. You're going to have to eat sandwiches at the reception and take the flowers and then watch as the room empties and then you get in the car with those flowers and you go back home and if you put your functional savior in the ground, who is going to be there to pick up your heart when it's shattered? And when you've collapsed to the ground and your heart is broken, who's going to pick it back up and put, put it back together? There's only one person who will never fail you. There's only one Savior that will never leave you nor forsake you, that will never die, that will never grow tired or weary, that won't get tired of your complaining. There's only one person who will give you grace after grace after grace after grace. There's only one person whose mercies are new every single morning. There's only one person who is steadfast and faithful and true. It's not your mom and dad. It's not your kids. It's not your spouse. My experience is that I'm regularly talking with people in the middle of crisis in their lives. Regularly dealing with that. And I'm regularly dealing with people who even would call themselves Christians, including myself. And there's this constant pull to go back to those idols, to go to these lesser gods, to run to the same things that the Pharisees would go to, this esteem, these things that I, that I use to nourish my soul, that it's more important to me that I am honored, that I get this promotion, that, I, that I'm able to accomplish this square footage, that we can live the dream, that I can retire by this age, that we can vacation in this spot, there's this constant pull of the heart that creates these things as idols. And then, the, then there's fallout. 
And this career that was defining sense of self, the boss gets transferred. You don't get the promotion. It doesn't satisfy you anymore. You, you're retiring, and now it, doesn't, it can't define you the way that it used to. Or you put your worth in, an, in, order, in, in upholding an orderly home, but then you realize, you know what, I can't control my spouse or my children, and it just keeps falling apart. And I feel like I'm, I'm losing it, and I'm failing as a parent. And I am regularly dealing with the fallout of idolatry in my heart over and over again. That's why Jesus said, you got to know. This is so important. Laser light focus. Get this above everything else. Nourish your soul. Delight. Feast on God. Make him your everything. Because anything else is not a virtue. Anything else won't satisfy. Everything else that we can pursue is just sinking sand. This weekend, I'm, I'm going to be traveling down to southern Virginia to help a relative whose dad is being moved into nursing care. House full of stuff. And a lifetime, 90 plus years of gathering and collecting now is an annoyance to his son to have to deal with. And the things that you and I go into debt to get our kids are going to say, why on earth would I want your collection of special spoons or china like it's too expensive to get rid of i'm not going to use that china in my life and these things that we chase after become a burden in the future but you know the legacy that will never die is when you teach your children to love god with all their heart soul mind and strength that even when you're a shell of yourself in the nursing home it can never be taken from you. So let me ask you just a few questions as we close. And then what I want to do is we're going to spend some time, two songs we're going to sing as an intentional time where we can stop, time out, God, I need this right now. Just like this, the deer pants for streams of water because here's what I've found in my life, <laughs> that the more my anxiety goes up, it's usually the less I've been nourishing my soul in God. And the more I've been nourishing my soul in God, the less my anxiety is there. We need to worship, to remind our heart, God, this is who you are. Self, this is who I am. I'm going to delight in you, God. Let me ask you a few questions and then we're going to worship together. Who or what is your functional savior? Who or what would you say, I cannot live without? For many of us, that's our spouse, our parents, our kids. For some of us, it might be our job, our dream home situation, our career. And listen, listen, Jesus would just say, those are good things. When they come ultimate things, they're bad things. And, and the posture of our heart needs to be repentance. And that doesn't need to be a religious word. It just means coming into agreement with God and turning the other direction. God, I, I confess it, and I'm going to walk towards you. And guess what? That's going to be something you do every single day. Every single day, you're going to put your feet on your floor as you get out of your bed, and you're going to say, today, I want to delight myself in you, God. And then the next morning, you're going to put your feet down, and you're going to say, today, I'm going to delight myself in you. That's, that's why I want you to memorize this, this verse, Psalm 90, verse 14. 
Dan, scrub forward two screens. I think it's there. Psalm 90, verse 14. This is what it says. It says, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that I might sing for joy and be glad all the days of my life. Nourish my soul. Unload it on me, God. I don't want a thimble. I want you to wash an ocean over me. Read it with me. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all the days of life. When you feel like being in despair because she's left you, you say, satisfy me in the morning with your unfailing love. When your kids think you're a loser, satisfy me in the morning with your unfailing love. When you and your spouse are at it again, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. Let me pray. Let me pray. God, allow us to do that. I, I fall so short all the time. I so often chase things that will never satisfy, that only ever frustrate, that continually make me come up empty. Satisfy me in the morning with your unfailing love that I might sing for joy and be glad all the days of my life. God, we come into this space and we seek out just to nourish our souls on your greatness and on your goodness, on your steadfastness, on your mercy, on your love, on your patience, on your immutability, on your all-powerfulness, the fact that you know every thought, every emotion, everything we've ever done, and you would still choose to extend your mercy and grace to us. With all that we've been through and all I've ever seen you, God, do, I will choose to praise you and nourish my soul in who you are because you are worthy and nothing else will satisfy. So God, we sing and we declare in Christ's name. How great, how great, how great.